Two weeks ago, we saw Jesus tangle with the Pharisees. Last week, we saw him take on the Herodians. Neither group could get the upper hand. And now, if we were going to follow the gospel in its chronological order, we would have read Jesus' encounter with another important group within Judaism, the Sadducees, and how they attempted to trip him up with a question about the resurrection. The Sadducees consisted of the priestly aristocratic element of Judaism. They traced their origin to the time of the Maccabean Rebellion about 167 BC. This Jewish revolt was against their Greek Seleucid rulers who were attempting to eradicate Jewish religion and Jewish identity. With the defeat of the Greeks and the restoration of Orthodox temple worship, the Sadducees lent their support to the priests and particularly to the high priests. They remained an influential power right up to Jesus' day. Like the Herodians, the Sadducees preferred to cooperate with the Romans in hopes of keeping the temple and the Sanhedrin, the Jewish courts, free from Roman interference. Now, the Sadducees' theological beliefs were completely different from those of the Pharisees. The Sadducees did not accept the book of Psalms. They didn't accept any of the prophets, only the first five books of the Bible. They believed that the human soul died with the body. Nothing of a person survived death, not even a remote possibility of a resurrection. They also denied the existence of angels and demons. The Pharisees, on the other hand, and most likely Jesus himself belonged to the Pharisaic branch of Judaism, the Pharisees accepted the book of Psalms and the writings of the prophets. They believed in the immortality of the soul, the resurrection of the body, and the reality of angels and demons. It should go without saying that the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not particularly get along very well. Our reading omits the Sadducees' effort to trick Jesus by asking a question about the resurrection. Now Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, who knows exactly what happens to us when we die, reduced the Sadducees to silence. He quoted from the book of Exodus chapter 3 verse 6, which, in which God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob proving that since God continues to name these men and claims to still be their God, they're not dead at all. They're very much alive. And since Jesus used the book of Exodus, one of the five the Sadducees accepted, they had no choice but to acknowledge that their teaching, that the human soul was annihilated at death, was wrong. Thus far, Jesus has taken on the power players of Judaism, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees, winning hands down. And today's gospel, Jesus takes on another group, this a subgroup of the Pharisees, the scholars of the law, a highly respected group within Judaism. And we are told that one of them tested him by asking, Teacher, 
which commandment in the law is the greatest? Traditional Christian preaching often views this testing as being an act of hostility. I grew up in a Jewish area. I used to attend synagogue with my Jewish friends. I don't agree with that view of preaching at all. To this day, it is not uncommon for, especially for a new rabbi, to be asked by his congregation which is the greatest of the commandments. Testing a teacher or a rabbi was a standard, acceptable, and in fact, a necessary practice to make sure that that so-called teacher, that rabbi, had a sufficient grasp of the Torah in order to instruct others. The question Jesus was asked was very traditional. Which commandment in the law is the greatest? It's a question that's still asked today. Why? Over time, the Pharisees had developed 613 precepts from the law of Moses. So, asking which commandment was greatest was no small matter. Whatever the scholar's intention, Jesus was asked a very Jewish question, and he gave a very Jewish answer with a twist. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But then Jesus did something radical. He, <coughs> he added, the whole law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. The text better translates as the whole of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. For the first part of the answer, Jesus quoted an ancient prayer, the Shema, found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Shema Israel, listen, O Israel. Adonai Elohenu, the Lord is our God. Adonai Echad, the Lord is one. Every Jew, including Jesus, including his mother and his disciples, would have prayed the Shema daily because it encapsulates the essence of Jewish belief to always place the love of God first in one's life. For the second part of the answer, Jesus quoted Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, to love the neighbor as one loves oneself. Remembering, however, that earlier in this gospel, Jesus insisted that this applied to our enemies, that we should love them as we love ourselves. Arguably a radical departure then, I would say a departure from the norm today. The whole of Torah, God's law, and the prophet says Jesus, hang on observing these two commandments, love of God and love of neighbor, as one. And unless these two are observed together, the observance of all the other precepts is inherently defective. No Pharisee, no Sadducee, no Herodian, no scholar of the law could dispute Jesus' claim. And the truth of what Jesus said then True today. 
during this coming week? Maybe let's reflect a bit. Do I really make the love of God first in my life? Do I make God first in my life as, for example, when I consider who I'm going to date, court, marry, have children with? If I do, it'll most likely be a happy marriage, even with the ups and downs and the struggles. If God is not first, one starts off with a great disadvantage. Do I make God first in my life when I consider what I am called to do with my life? Or do I just flit about from one job to the other without any sense of direction? Do I make God first in my life when I consider who I wish to embrace as a friend? You see, making God first in one's life brings all the other aspects of our lives, all the other relationships of our lives, into balance. Do I make God first in my life in worship? Or is worship something I can do when I feel like it? When the Spirit moves me? Maybe at Christmas and Easter? Because if I'm not making worship of God first, because we are hardwired for worship, we will worship something or someone and it will always harm us in the end. How do I allow my relationship with God to influence how I see others in my life? As blessings? Gifts to be cherished for the very short time we have life in this world? Or as inconveniences that we have to put up with? Do I try to justify seeing my enemy as someone to be detested? Or do I allow my relationship with God to compel me to see that that person is someone to be prayed for because he or she is as deeply loved by God as I am? Love of God. Love of neighbor. The quality of human life, says Jesus, hangs on both being one.